trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Thanks again for tuning in. This is your first time. All I can tell you is buckle up. I like to go places that uh, perhaps are a little bit off the beaten path, but sometimes you go there because that's where the truth is to be found. That's not to say that you must believe every word I speak. Just that uh, I'm pretty dedicated to trying to find timely, credible, and informative information to pass along not so you can you know revel in fear and and anger or you know angst over all the crazy stuff that's happening but i I prefer to to put it this way we revel in wrong think because it's that important to stay rooted in reality and boy are we living in a time when reality is is being turned on its head at at pretty much every turn i want to give you an example of, of what that looks like and i'm sorry this this is going to sound like, oh boy, he's piling on here. But uh, LeVar Burton, I remember when he came onto the public uh, consciousness, I think it was back in 1977, Alex Haley's book Roots was made into a made-for-TV miniseries. Very groundbreaking. I mean, it, it, uh, it was remarkable. And, and it told the story of slavery without flinching, and uh, particularly the story of one of uh, Alex Haley's forebears, you know, a young African man by the name of Kunta Kinte, who was kidnapped and, and brought over to America, the, the horrible conditions he endured being brought over as a slave. And, you know, eventually, you know, this this is just about uh, the experience that uh, Alex Haley's family had been through. But LeVar Burton played this young Kunta Kinte. And he went on to, to stardom in, uh, let's see, Star Trek, The Next Generation. He was, uh, you know, Geordi with the weird uh, air filter looking uh, eyes uh, that, uh, that was part of that series. Uh, also, of course, the host of Reading Rainbow. Generally a pretty beloved performer. But in recent years, LeVar Burton has become really woke. I mean, like to the point of militantly woke to where, you know, any opportunity he has to be in the public is, you know, I must denounce the orange man and you know, raise the fist of, of uh, you know, black power or communism or whatever it is, you know, that, that lies at the root of wokeness. And so it was really interesting <laughs> to see the, uh, uh, the PBS series, and, and I forget the name of, of the series now. It's, it's something like, uh, you know, it, it basically it's figuring out your, your ancestry. And uh, they did one for LeVar Burton. And, uh, <laughs> oh, it's, it's Finding Your Roots. Finding Your Roots. That's the name of the series. And in, in his episode, they, they actually changed the word your to you are. Finding you are roots. But what was amazing was uh, in looking into LeVar Burton's history, he found out that I think it was his great, 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 he was just his great, great grandfather, was a Confederate soldier, a white guy, no less, who had children with a woman. I don't know if she was a former slave or not, um, but the the look on LeVar Burton's face when he is given this news that, oh, by the way, you know, you are descended from a Confederate soldier. <laughs> He's like, well, this this was not, not what I expected. And I think the, the best the best line from the whole thing, I mean, look, 
Self-owns are the best owns, but uh, Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, um, threw this one out there, probably the best one-liner I've seen in a while, and his question was, so how much does he owe himself in reparations? <laughs> I was like, okay, there it is. Look, I don't, uh, I, I have no I have no animus toward LeVar Burton. I, I don't uh, feel especially uh, congenial towards the whole woke agenda. But it is kind of funny to see somebody get to get turned on their head a little bit when when it turns out that they're they're part of what they're preaching, you know, hatred or you know, rejection of. Uh, I think Wanda Sykes had kind of a similar thing. They went through to find her roots, and and uh, she has kind of built her whole stick on. Well, I came from slaves, and turns out no, she didn't. She's actually had a pretty privileged life, and nobody in her uh, in her family history could be traced to having been a slave. Whoops. I guess it just shows that, you know, the folly of trying to build identity, you know, for the sake of uh, claiming victimhood or, you know, this means that everybody else has to love me because uh, this is where I came from. If there's a distinction that we need to make, you know, as far as, well, who exactly are we? This is the one that I, I would go with. This is my default setting. You know, do you know who I am? Do you know where I descended from? Yes. You're a child of God. Same as everybody else, which means you are of infinite value. That's not dismissive like, oh, well, yeah, you don't matter. You're just a, you're just another fish in the sea. No, there's a spark of divinity in you. And I say that with the understanding, maybe it's time you start acting like it. In other words, treating people the way that you would treat divine beings. C.S. Lewis had a lot to say about this, and I can't recommend his, his writings enough. But I just had to, I had to, I, sorry, I had to take a little victory lap here just in, in watching that discomfort of, well, I didn't expect this to find out that after all this, you know, race baiting and, and, and wokery, it's funny to find out that one of the more vocal proponents actually descended from a Confederate soldier. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Actually, one of my dearest friends in the world um, had ancestors who fought for the Confederacy. And I'll come right out and say it. You know, it's, I know that uh, the so-called civil war, you know, we've, we've been conditioned to believe that was all about slavery. That's, that's what it was about. Slavery was one component of many components that led to that, that war. But I still think the most accurate description of what took place was uh, a very fierce abolitionist by the name of, of uh, Lysander Spooner, who typified it as Lincoln's War of Involuntary Union. He should have just let the southern states go. He should have let them go their own way. I, I think that they would have found their way back together. I think there would have been reconciliation. Slavery was on its way out. Sorry. Automation, industrialization made it foolish and extremely costly to try to keep, you know, human, you know, workers to do the work these machines could do so many times over. I mean, Europe made it happen without firing a shot. But let's let's. Remember, hist- the, the history is written by the victors and uh, the court historians for Lincoln made sure that it was cast as, well, you know, this was to, to free the slaves and it was such a noble cause, but it wasn't. It was actually an absolute uh, uh, repudiation of the principles of federalism. Sorry, I'm refighting the, the war between the states here, but it, it was the rejection that the states are and ought to be independent republics with that little area of overlap in which the federal government acts in their interests, primarily towards how the, the states 
together would interact with the world. I think Jefferson put it this way. Um, to the outside world, we are one. But inside, you know, the, the borders of these United States with a small U, we are many different states. Something I'm kind of glad for. By the way, have you heard what California's doing or what they're proposing? Oh, my goodness. My friend sent me this, this video the other day. Um, Jameson, first of all, tip of the hat. Thank you for, for sending that along. California, which is already one of the most heavily taxed states in the union, is looking to go after people. Even if you, even if you only live in California part-time, they want you paying tax um, no matter where you live in the world. And if you try to leave the state, they want to tax you as heavily as possible. Where have we seen that before? Yeah, usually totalitarian countries. Yes, you can leave, but you must first pay this tax, and, and we're going to take as much of your wealth as we can. I mean, I mean no disrespect. I've got, I have friends and loved ones who live in California, but there's a part of me that really wishes that they could escape before it becomes you know, what it's on its way to becoming, which is basically a very beautiful, large, open-air prison. How long before California starts putting up, you know, fences around its borders? Not to keep everybody else out, but to keep, you know, it's, it's uh, people in. The better to be plundered. Anyway, that's, sorry, it's kind of a negative note, but I cannot believe the, um, is it the chutzpah of those who would sit there and, and think, you know, no matter where you go, we will follow you and we will tax you. I guess there are just so many blessings that the political class wishes to bestow on us, I'm just, I'm just stunned that they would actually come right out and suggest, so this is what we're willing to do. All right, coming up, we're going to talk a little bit about trad wives. You ever heard that term? It's fairly new to me, but it's, it's shorthand for traditional wife. And it's a phrase that uh, has just kind of recently come into, into uh, my awareness, but it's something that will definitely trigger, trigger those folks who are on the woke side of the spectrum. I've got a great article here about... Uh, Whatever happened to traditional wives, and, and why does that cause so much controversy when someone talks about a trad wife? It's, it's a sure way to uh, cause an absolute meltdown. If you were to say those words, the word trad wife, on a, a college campus, well, let's just say that there's a very good likelihood that a hate crime would be reported with all the attendant drama. We'll come back to that just the other side of these messages. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. A quick shout out to my sponsors, including QuiltAndSew.com, Ironsight Brewing Company. That's IronsightBC.com. TMCPNation.com and LifesavingFood.com. If you go to my show notes, which you will find at TheBrianHydeShow.com, you'll find all of those sponsors neatly packaged up with links you can follow directly to their websites. By the way, I'm sorry, I kind of went off on a little bit of a tear in that uh, that first segment, just kind of riffing, but uh, there there were just so many things going on. That was That was some of the stuff that caught my attention. Let's take a little more focused approach here. And let's talk about uh, the uh, traditional wife. This is from L. Reichard White. Found this on lourockwell.com over the weekend. And uh, L. Reichard White asks, have you heard of the trad wife movement yet? 
It's an acronym for traditional wife. And so far, it uh, resides especially among millennial and Gen Z women. Now, these young women would prefer being stay-at-home wives, keeping house and raising kids, as depicted in 50s and 60s movies and TV series like Leave it to Beaver, The Dick Van Dyke Show, Dennis the Menace, The Donna Reed Show, I Love Lucy, and so on. Now, he says, at the hazard of melting a few feminist LGBTQ and uh, currently other uncategorized snowflakes, I would suggest that these OG young ladies are embracing their honest, basic, biological genetic nature in the face of a hostile and self-destructive culture. Now, being rather strangely in touch with several of the above, particularly the feminist branch, because I was raised by my mother, grandmother, and their stalwart aide, Helen Kovacic, I can speak with experience and a reasonable amount of of, uh, credibility. In particular... My mother, a successful Broadway actress, gave up her career, worked as a chef, then a teacher, and finally a college professor in order to raise me. He says she was a great mom, and so I should have realized the implications when she told me every once in a while that she would have much preferred to stay at home, keep house, and raise a bunch of kids, even in preference to her Broadway career. Now, he says, I always thought that was interesting, but I failed to take it seriously until I got my second data point. For convenience, we will call that second data point Myra. She was a successful women's rights attorney and best friends with Steve Goldberg, another quirky gambling legend straight out of the late 20th century. He says, that's why along with my last wife, Chrissy, we were having a comp lunch at Donald Trump's Atlantic City Taj Mahal before it went bankrupt. Myra told us she had a dream job, but she was unhappy and seriously depressed. Now, Myra's dream job was, as she described it, suing abusive husbands into the gutter or putting them in jail. But she said feminism had betrayed her. How so, I asked. The answer was, feminism told me I could only be happy if I had a career. I now realize that was a lie, a big lie. My inner voice is telling me I should have gotten married and been a homemaker raising children. My clock has been ticking for years and I've been ignoring it in favor of the feminist ideal. I'm afraid it's too late for me now. All I can see ahead is a lonely old woman. Wow. Now, she went on to tell us that a majority of her friends, mostly successful professional women, felt similarly. And so he says, my mom wasn't alone. How about you? And do you have to have a job to be a feminist? He says, I suspect that a lot, I suspect rather, a lot of that notion has something to do with what the government corporate complex learned from putting Rosie the Riveter to work during World War II, particularly the advantages of being able to tax the female half of the population as well as the male half. That's a conspiracy theory for another time, but consider Mar- Marilyn Waring's If Women Counted, a TED Talk right from the lady herself. Now, L. Reichard White says, My grandmother was a militant feminist, marched for the right to vote, and never held a job a day in her life. So where did the part of feminism that goes far beyond equal pay for equal work and the right to vote come from? Chrissy's daughter got a college scholarship and partied it away, but she learned something important anyway. All my women's studies professors were man-haters. I like men, she told me. Now, of course, not all young women feel that way. How many who do feel that way won't admit to it? After all, they would be betraying today's pseudo-feminism and a big chunk of everything they've been indoctrinated to believe about being a modern woman. And that's only the first half of the tragedy. The second half is that current American culture, in addition to emasculating men in subtle and not-so-subtle ways, has made it almost impossible to be a trad husband. That is, a breadwinner who can afford to support a stay-at-home trad wife and family. 
It's the taxes. He says, even in the 90s, my friend and sometimes mentor, James Libertarian Burns, wanted to get married, to be married, rather than indulge in victimless crimes with his hooker, as he delicately put it. But although he had a decent casino income, he never felt he could afford the stay-at-wife home and kids he wanted. Sadly, he never married. In the 50s and 60s, the historical period most trad girls, I know I'm being unwoke, favor, it was possible for one breadwinner to support the whole family. But even 30 years ago, according to the Family Research Council, rather, taxes had increased so much that in a two-parent family, one parent worked to support the family, the other to support the government. So even before the turn of the century, the report, the result rather of supporting government was that there was rarely a stay-at-home mother and the average teen hadn't had an uninterrupted 10-minute conversation with either parent in the last month. Half the teens had used tobacco, two-thirds had used alcohol, one-third illegal drugs. That's according to CNN and company back in 1995. So in a rather extraordinary effort to overcome this, he says, my son and his wife arranged their working schedule so that one of them could always be home with my granddaughter. The result was that they were rarely home and awake at the same time. They eventually divorced, explaining that in keeping their daughter safe, they'd become strangers. So L. Reichard White says, look, girls, if you want to have babies, thanks to Uncle Sam and his mimics, you have a better than 50-50 chance of ending up raising them on your own. And you won't be able to stay, you won't be able to be, rather, a stay-at-home mom because you'll need at least one job. And that's the true trad wife tragedy. So what are you going to do about it? He says, in this case, I'm asking because I don't have a clue, and I'm hoping some of you problem solvers out there do. That is an interesting dilemma. And by the way, by sharing this with you doesn't mean I'm just putting it all in your lap. Here, you fix it. But I remember the distinct shift in my own family. I'm talking the one that I grew up in. Now, part of it wasn't so much a matter of, yes, my parents were just wanting to, to get ahead and, you know, follow their careers. My dad had suffered from cancer. And uh, so he was, he was unemployable for a period of about five years. And during that time, which, as you might expect, was very lean financially, this would have been late 70s, early 80s, not exactly the best economic times in America, my mom had to take a job outside of the home. And I remember how much things changed within our family during that time. Now, you know, it's not all because she took a job and everything fell apart. It's more a matter of she took a job and her absence was noticed. It was felt. My sisters and I became latchkey kids. Uh, my dad was not always there. He was, he was doing odd jobs or trying to find, you know, some way to, to keep us afloat. But essentially, we spent a lot more time on our own. And that's, you know, part of it was because we were coming into our early teens. And it, it just, let me just say, trouble followed. And I don't know that our family was ever quite the same from that point. Now, that doesn't, again, I'm not trying to put this all on my mom. She only would have stayed home and not worked. We needed that income. But that kind of became the trend all over. And it's something that, uh, as uh, as they put here so eloquently, you know, about how uh, you have to have two incomes, one to support the family, one to support the government. Why did we become okay with that? 
Well, we have to have, you know, two incomes, you know, and, and people don't understand. Government still wants to grow. It still wants to tax. It still wants to provide us with all of these blessings. Look, we'll build parks. We'll do this. We'll do that. If we would cut it back to its proper size, maybe it wouldn't need to plunder us quite so hard. Maybe it wouldn't require two incomes or more just to keep your head above water. I mean, that fact coupled with inflation has a lot of people treading deep water right now. For every single person I know, the cost of living has gone up noticeably over the last couple of years. I'm sure there are other solutions out there. I don't have one on the tip of my tongue, but fierce independence would probably be the first direction I would be looking. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Listen, I appreciate those of you who have subscribed to my show notes. And if you are in a, uh, if you're in a curious mood, I'm going to throw something else out there just because there's another project that I am working on. In fact, this is one of several different projects I'm working on, but I would like you to consider checking out uh, my Substack, Hide in Plain Sight, H-Y-D-E in Plain Sight dot Substack dot com. Little short daily two-minute feature, just encouraging people to stand up and take responsibility for their own lives. It's a free subscription, but if you'd love to check it out and if you'd If you find something there of value, feel free to subscribe, maybe even pass it on to a friend. I would greatly appreciate it. And I've got another project that that I'm just, I'm chomping at the bit to tell you about, but we've got to get all the final pieces in place. But uh, suffice it to say, I know that, I know right now is kind of a scary time. It's clear that uh, there's a lot of stuff that's spiraling out of control, much of which we don't have control over in the first place, Right. You and I don't call the shots over in the Middle East. We don't uh, call the shots on what's happening even in Washington, D.C. But there's a lot that we can do and should be doing to, uh, to make our influence felt in the world. And I'm really excited about what's to come. So, yes, that's a big pregnant hint that just got dropped at your feet. But, uh, but you'll have to wait to find out more about it. In the meantime, let's talk a little bit about... Uh, about keeping your sanity these days. One of the things that that is required is relentless honesty with yourself. And that can be tough when you have a government that sows division and subsidizes madness. So looking at J.B. Shirk's latest article here, and uh, this one really, uh, this one struck a nerve with me. And I, by the way, I'm not I'm not suggesting, boy, you need to immerse yourself in everything that uh, that's going on, you know, presidential politics wise. Uh, look, before I dive into the article, uh, maybe you saw just uh, I believe over the weekend, Ron DeSantis said, OK, I'm stepping down from the GOP presidential race and throwing my support behind Trump. I can only imagine the panic that this is causing on the part of those who are so desperate to keep Trump from from being the nominee. And it's a little bit scary because their desperation has, has led to some pretty widespread suffering and sorrow. So I can only imagine what they, they're cooking up now as to what can we do? How can we stop this? I'm not sure I want to know, but uh, but things just got more interesting. So 
Let's go to uh, J.B. Shirk's article. He says, if I believe myself to be a fork, must society be made to agree? Should I be encouraged to hang out near salad bars with the expectation that diners will trust me with their food? If I continue to get passed over for other silverware, should I be allowed to sue for discrimination? Or worse, if someone has the nerve to call me a spoon, will the government step in to punish that bigot for misutensiling me? Now, the answer is, of course not. So then why should a man who, a man in makeup and a dress be given extra legal rights to sue anyone who sees through his delusions? Why should rational men be allowed, or expected rather, to allow mentally unstable men to use public restrooms with their wives and daughters? Why should parents be expected to entrust their children's welfare with psychologically troubled men who've sought out jobs at schools, amusement parks, and daycares? Why would government agents intervene to support the fantasies of people inclined to mutilate their bodies and traumatize others with their deceptions? How can any government maintain its legitimacy for long when it embraces insanity as reality and condemns reality as imaginary? For a long time, psychologically balanced people have done their best to ignore the government's increasingly psychotic behavior. When pressed, they've even reluctantly played along. You need me to wear this filthy paper mask that does nothing to prevent the transmission of viral particles floating in the air so that you know that I know this is all somehow Trump's fault. Fine. Don't break down in tears or start screaming or call the cops. I'll play along. J.B. Shirk says playing along, however, has gotten psychologically healthy people nowhere. For every insane concession they make to government authorities, those authorities invent a half dozen new insane demands of society. Remember when all those Trump voters exercised their First Amendment rights to assemble together and petition the U.S. government to address the rampant mail-in ballot fraud of the 2020 election? Yeah, even though all those people were unarmed and expressed no interest in overthrowing anything, that was totally a violent insurrection just as bad as 9-11 and the Civil War. Joe Biden even swears that those darn insurrectionists murdered five or ten or maybe 50 police officers that day. That never happened. But one unarmed Trump supporter was shot in cold blood and another was beaten to death. The government and its lapdog media need people to believe insane things. Facts are dangerous and reserved for people who live in reality. He says in another cockamamie example of uh, proving how playing along only invites further government psychopathy, the United Kingdom is now telling government employees they must actually believe in the transgender delusions flooding the workplace with cray-cray. That's right. It's no longer enough to merely play along with someone's unhealthy fantasies. Using an unbalanced person's preferred pronouns does not sufficiently demonstrate one's submission to the coercive state. If you want to keep your government job in the UK, you must commit yourself to thinking of the person as being the gender that they want you to think of them as. Now, that virtue signaling, shared madness, even requires a dogmatic, that it even requires a dogmatic faith in biological, uh, biologically impossible things, such as the government's assertions that men can go through menopause and have babies. Back in the days before the mentally unwell were put in charge of the West's mental health organizations, the World Health Organization just added a bunch of transgender activists to a policy committee intended to set global rules for children. Playing along with someone's mental delusions was discouraged because doing so harmfully enables dangerous and self-destructive behavior. But he says now refusing to play along can get one sacked. 
How long before those who should be committed to mental institutions instead commit sane people for not sufficiently pretending to believe in things that are not true? When the choice is between reality and a paycheck, desperate people will accept insane things to get paid. By the way, he says, add this observation to the growing list of reasons why freedom-minded people should not only thwart the introduction of central bank digital currencies, but also embrace forms of money free from government-induced inflation and manipulation. Now, J.B. Shirk says it would be some small comfort if this kind of insanity remained isolated in the leftist enclaves that manipulate minds by manipulating language. Alas, as leftists successfully captured the West's major institutions... They saw no reason not to capture those institutions that were once staunchly conservative as well. Churches, family values organizations, even the prestigious medical journals have all thrown reason and science out the window to supplicate before the priests of political correctness. When asked bluntly, or how widespread is the transgender delusion today? Well, when asked bluntly whether a man can say abracadabra and magically transform into a woman, Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley hailing from conservative South Carolina, couldn't decide what to say. That's the corrosive influence the left's delusions have, even on those who should know better. Now he says the ruling class defends all of these government-imposed delusions as some kind of justice of all the words that the Marxist globalists have misappropriated and subversively redefined, their torture of justice has been the most heinous. Whenever a person in a position of power says something about justice these days, you can be pretty sure that the government is either orchestrating a crime in plain sight or issuing a new wave of malicious propaganda dressed up in false virtue and empathy-baiting psychobabble. When you think about it, governments have done justice, have done to justice, rather, what delusional men do with castration, boob jobs, and hormone therapy. They've mutilated reality in order to play pretend. In the name of social justice, San Francisco's Democrat-controlled government has responded to rising crime and general lawlessness in the city by attacking police officers as white supremacists, yeah, even the non-white ones, and reducing the penalties for and enforcement against violent crimes. As the economists say, if you want something, more of something rather, subsidize it. And because citizens and the businesses have been left defenseless against organized theft, in fact, they're even told not to resist robbers and thieves who assault them, businesses and entrepreneurs have no choice but to move away. Now that San Francisco's remaining residents, the ones who keep voting for poop-covered streets and subsidized crime, are finding it difficult to find and maybe steal basic necessities, they are very upset that grocery and convenience stores refuse to be perpetual victims. Have the Democrats learned a lesson? Of course not. They demand food justice because the left's perversion of language has indoctrinated several generations with a malevolent disregard for others and no sense of justice at all. Now, there's a lot more to this article, but I'm going to let you uh, discover it for yourself. I will say this. J.B. Shirk is on is he's on the right key here when he says when justice loses all meaning, injustice becomes pervasive. In fact, when Delusional behavior is celebrated and honesty is outlawed as bigotry. Insanity thrives. Why are Western governments pushing irrational, unscientific, ludicrous nonsense that's physically and emotionally harmful, socially dangerous, and economically destructive? He says perhaps it's because those with power find it useful to sow division and subsidize madness. By the way, his recommendation, this is worth writing down. Do not comply. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Final segment today. I have three incredible articles that I would like to share with you. And I'm going to start with the article of the day, just because I think this is this is one that I'm including it because it's it's words to live by in a time where there is so much deception and, and such an incredible um, battle against reality. You've heard me talk about Alexander Solzhenitsyn from time to time, and I I can't even begin to express the admiration that I have for for this giant. This guy was one of the true intellectual giants of the 20th century. And among his greatest contributions to humanity was an essay that was published the day that he was exiled from his homeland of Russia. It was an essay titled, Live Not by Lies. And it's as relevant today as it was when it was published in 1974, This is a post that I saw on LewRockwell.com earlier today from Friar Emmanuel Charles McCarthy. And it's just excerpts from, or it's actually an excerpt from Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Live Not By Lies essay, but it is so powerful. And the gist of it is, is just simply this. When you are facing tyranny, and I don't care, you know, how big or small that tyranny may be written, The person who is going to stand on the side of truth must never knowingly support lies. We're not called upon to step out on the square and shout out the truth, but he says, let us not refuse, or let us at least refuse to say what we do not think. And he gives uh, gives some really solid advice here. Will he remain a a witting servant, rather, of lies? Needless to say, not due to natural predisposition, but in order to provide a living for the family, but then also to rear the children in the spirit of lives? Or has the time come for this man to stand straight as an honest man, worthy of the respect of his children and his contemporaries? And from that day onward, he will not write, sign, nor publish in any way a single line distorting, so far as he can see, the truth will not utter such a line in private or in public conversation, nor read it from a crib sheet, nor speak it in the role of an educator, canvasser, teacher, or actor, will not in painting, sculpture, photograph, technology, or music depict, support, or broadcast a single false thought, a single distortion of the truth as he discerns it, will not cite in writing or in speech a single guiding quote for gratification, insurance, for his success at work, unless he fully shares the cited thought and believes that it fits the context precisely, will not be forced to a demonstration or rally if it runs counter to his desire and his will, will not take up and raise a banner or slogan in which he does not fully believe, will not raise a hand and vote for a proposal which he does not sincerely support will not vote openly or in secret ballot for a candidate whom he deems dubious or unworthy, will not be impelled to a meeting where a forced and distorted discussion is expected to take place, will walk out at once from a session, meeting, lecture, play, or film as soon as he hears the speaker utter a lie, ideological drivel, or shameless propaganda, will not subscribe to nor buy in retail a newspaper or journal that distorts or hides the underlying facts. Now, that comes with a price. 
Solzhenitsyn says this is by no means an exhaustive list of the possible and necessary ways of saying no to lies, but he who begins to cleanse himself will, with a cleansed eye, easily discern yet other opportunities. And listen to this. He says, yes, at first it will not be fair. Some will have to temporarily lose his job. Someone will have to temporarily lose his job. For the young who seek not to live by lies, this will at first severely complicate life. For their tests and quizzes are as stuffed with lies as elections. But choices have to be made. There is no loophole left for anyone who seeks to be honest, not even for a day. Not even in the safest technical occupations can he avoid even a single one of the listed choices to be made in favor of either truth or lies, in favor of spiritual independence or spiritual servility. As for him who lacks the courage to defend even his own soul, let him not brag of his progressive views, boast of his status as an academician or recognized artist, a distinguished citizen or general. Let him say to himself plainly, I am cattle, I am a coward, I seek only warmth and to eat my fill. It will not be an easy path, says Alexander Solzhenitsyn, perhaps, but it is the easiest among those that are before us. Not an easy choice for the body, but the only one for the soul. But he says, if we shrink away, then let us cease complaining that someone does not let us draw breath. We do it to ourselves. Let us then cower and hunker down while our comrades, the biologists, bring closer the day when our thoughts can be read and our genes altered. I don't know about you, but that's that's a pretty good kick in the seat of the pants. From a guy who actually knew something about tyranny, who actually lived on the receiving end of some of the ugliest tyranny that the human race has ever seen. Again, you'll find a link to this in the show notes. It's the article of the day, an excerpt from Live Not By Lies by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Two quick articles I want to touch on in the closing minutes of the show. Um, the finer points of hospitality... I don't know how often you host parties. I'm really not that social of an animal, but um, Alethea Hits, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, has three simple tips for practicing everyday hospitality. I thought these were especially good because you never know when you're going to be playing a host. And uh, one of them is to be attentive. One is to keep it simple. And then uh, the third one is leave unstructured time. Pretty interesting stuff. If you're going to be throwing a party, you know, please invite me. I'll come over. I'll, I'll tell you how you're doing. Hey, you hit all three of them. Good job. All right. This last article, this one just blows my mind. And, and it probably shouldn't, but uh, you've heard me talk about the concern I have that the people who pushed all the COVID madness on us, and by that I mean the responses, all the masking and separation and closures and lockdowns and, uh, you know, the, the vaccine mandates, they are still in power, or at least they, they haven't been removed from power as they should, which means they are going to do it again. Disease X, whatever that is, seems to be uh, something that's finding some traction among mainstream media. And I think what we're going to find is disease X is going to be the, uh, well, it's going to be the death of free speech. We have to censor everything in order to prevent misinformation. Just watch. But this one disturbs me a lot too and that is do you know that to get your u.s residency requires the covid jab jeffrey tucker writing for the brownstone institute says it's helpful to think of a covid experience as a never-ending house of horrors with room after room of scandal and outrage so much that you never quite get through it there are simply not enough researchers or column inches to cover it all in the past any one of these outrages 
would be enough to call forth enormous public debate. Introduce them all at once, starting in March 2020, and gradually unfold and codify them over a few years, and many features slip through the cracks. So he says, consider, for example, the continued requirement that any legally immigrating person coming to the U.S. from another country and seeking residency is absolutely required to get the COVID-19 vaccine, a shot widely admitted not to protect against infection or spread and is associated with injury on a scale without pharmaceutical precedent. And yet the U.S. government requires it. And he links to the evidence from the U.S. uh, Citizenship and Immigration Services. Now, they're told they have to get a whole bunch of different vaccines, but among them is COVID-19. And the language is to prevent the following diseases, but it's completely untrue. You cannot make it true simply by claiming that it prevents something. It does nothing of the kind, despite its moniker of being a vaccine. And it's generally not possible to avoid the requirement. You can appeal for a religious exemption, but that involves several rounds of correspondence and documentation. And these have been variously granted, but only after much headache, bureaucracy, and expense. In other words, very few will go to the trouble. And beware, because this COVID vaccine is being gradually added to every list of requirements that's available, from immigration to the childhood schedule to school attendance. This is despite how the shot has completely failed to perform up to the promise of the first year. It's fully known by vast swaths of the world's population, yet U.S. bureaucracies persist in their impositions without the slightest sense that they ought to acquiesce to the reality that everyone knows. By the way, speaking of a little harsh dose of reality, oh, Djokovic, uh, what's his name? The, the tennis player, the guy who was, was being pilloried here not so long ago for refusing to get the jab. One of the journalists who absolutely just was relentless about how selfish this guy is for not getting the jab. That journalist just died recently. In fact, let me put it another way. He died suddenly. Was it the vaccination? I don't know. But the irony here is is thick enough to cut with a knife. Oh, this, uh, this tennis player, he could have been the greatest of all time if he just would have got the vaccine. Well, I'm assuming that the reporter who was heckling him did that. And now that reporter has suffered a very untimely death. He's a young guy, too. Just add him to that growing list of otherwise healthy people who have suddenly dropped dead. This is The Brian Hyde Show.